to be honest, I'm not so good at the that I'm not so good at the humble brag. I think I, my motto in life is if people are good at something, you should tell others about it because one, it sort of val- validates like you know the hard work you've done, but also it might inspire other people because if you sort of hide your talents and skills and achievements. It means that other people are like, oh my God, Tato did that. I mean, she's a great singer. Oh, Bobby really loves maths. Actually, I-, I could do that. Actually, you inspire people as well. So it's a win-win. You do a humble brag, you might inspire someone. Hello, beautiful human, and welcome to the finale episode of our podcast. I'm so, so grateful to all of you who've been listening and following and asking questions and giving feedback it really really means a lot to me um yeah just thank you and also I just want to share how proud I am of myself for having an idea and putting it into action and having this body of work that's out in the world now that's a thing that I've done and I just want to challenge you now at the end of my first season of the podcast to take that first step whatever that is for you just do it like you will feel so proud of yourself and you'll feel like such an epic human being for yeah for like doing the thing you can do the thing I promise you you can do the thing so today I thought I would leave you with an interview I did with a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, whose name is Bobby Siegel. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as long as much as I enjoyed creating it. Bobby is just a ray of sunshine. He's hilarious and he's just full of bizarre but like really inspirational stories and I thought it would be such a great note to end the podcast on. I'm gonna just read a brief uh, bio on Bobby so you know who he is especially if you come from South Africa you might not have heard of him. Bobby Siegel is a school maths teacher, author and broadcaster. Before moving into education he was in investment banking as a trader at Lehman Brothers in Nomura and is a qualified chartered accountant from PwC. He is an ambassador for the charity National Numeracy, a presenter for an open university course on personal finance for young adults, a regular contributor to Radio 4's Puzzle for Today and a columnist for the Financial Times. Bobby's ongoing doctoral research on Cambridge is on maths anxiety. He is the author of The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers and co-presenter of the podcast Maths Appeal. With his university challenge friend, he co-wrote the Monkman and Seagull quiz and he co-presents the BBC TV series Monkman and Seagull's Genius Guides. Outside of maths, he is a long-suffering West Ham fan. So yeah, without further ado, here is our final episode. Chill, just take it slow, don't waste your time, cause there's no use. Don't you get attached to this, cause you know there's no use.
Harvey, thank you so, so, so much for agreeing to come on to the podcast. Um, as a bit of a backstory, guys, to anyone listening, I literally, I met Bobby through, so we have a mutual friend who was having an event and um, after the event, we were all kind of mooching and milling around. And then both my husband and I like fell in love, literally fell in love with Bobby. And we were just like, who is this person? He's just so great. Um, and then we swapped numbers. And then Robbie and I had coffee. He had mint tea and I had coffee. And he just told me the most amazing story. And I was like, do you want to come on my podcast? And then he was like, yeah, sure. And now here he is. So thank you so, so much for just taking a chance on like a little old gal like me. No, it's a pleasure, Tato. Um, When we first met, you know, sometimes people, they've got an energy, a vibe, a positivity about them. And I felt that about you and your husband. And I thought, oh, actually, these are people that I want to be friends with. We've literally subsequently invited him for dinner, but he's not said yes. But he's <laughs> a very yes. busy man. I, I said yes, but I'm trying. I'm trying to. I said yes, but just trying to work out a date. <laughs> that is all good. Okay, cool. So, guys, if you don't know Bobby Seagull, well, I mean, we didn't know who he was, so I won't. Fig- I won't be mad at you, especially if you're in South Africa, because then you have a massive excuse. But um, Bobby is a lot of things. Like he's a teacher like an actual school teacher, but then he also used to work for banking and we're going to get into all of those things as well. And I'm going to give you a proper intro to him. I probably already have done this. This is like in the past tense, but yeah, so he's a teacher, but he's also on TV for a whole bunch of other things. And he used to be in banking and he's just an interesting, exciting, very positive, upbeat person. And I felt like I'd love to hear his story because giving that context um i think would be really empowering to other people who you know maybe aren't necessarily exactly where they want to be in life and they kind of want to get from a to b and they don't really know energetically because obviously there's a roadmap but you know things need to change inside before they change outside so to start off with could you tell us about your childhood tell us about your parents tell us about like you know what 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 the young life was like for bobby mm-hmm. so young bobby uh, like lots of sugars and sweets. Yeah, he's definitely loved his sweets and sugars. But <laughs> he uh, grew up in East London. Uh, but my parents moved from Kerala in southwest India to London in the late 1970s. So I've seen some old pictures with their flares, my dad's tashed, long hairstyles. Uh, I love it. Yeah, they, they look, yeah, I mean, they look trendy for those days. Although, to be honest, I think. Fashion's come back in now. If they walk down, uh, you know, the London clubs wearing those outfits, people will go, hey, these are cool people. <laughs> <laughs> Can they fit into those outfits? No, no. So maybe it's it's, it's my responsibility as the next generation. Actually, I can't fit into my dad's clothes either. He was like slim as a beanpole. Really? I'm slim as well. You, I'm, I'm slim. But he was, it's like Indian style 1970s. They were like slim. They didn't like sugar and sweets like I do. Um, <laughs> so we grew up in a, place town called East Ham um, and we grew up in a council estate so quite a challenging upbringing because uh, it was probably one of the most deprived areas in East London maybe nationally you know yeah. a lot of people quite diverse in terms of backgrounds actually back then in the sort of 
late 80s, early 90s, quite a lot of white British working class people, which to be honest, if anyone knows East London now, the demographics change. There's lots of Asians, lots of people of African origin, lots of people of Eastern European origin. Uh, but back then, actually, it was very much white working class British. Um, but it was a very challenging area. L lots of gangs, um, poverty, education wasn't really valued. So it's a place where there are people that I grew up with that the next time I saw them was actually in front of a news local newspaper for grievous bodily harm. Stop. Committing, committing, not... And I was like, wow, that was Darren. I'm like, oh my God, that's Darren. What happened to him? I, and to be honest, I always think there's nothing in my internal stuff, my genes, I don't think that's any different from them. I just think I was fortunate that I, one, had a, I went to a good school, a bit okay. further away, like a couple of my state school, government school, but a good school. But mm -hmm. secondly, had family and relatives where maybe this is an immigrant um, sort of attitude. When you move to a new country, you feel as if life is hard. So you've got to work hard, doubly as hard as everyone else. So I think there was always a work ethic instilled in us that no one's going to hand you things on a plate. Um, and I remember that. So we had a really happy childhood, watching lots of television, listening to music, playing football. But we was always study every day, six o'clock to eight o'clock. We'd always sit in our room. Sometimes, to be honest, my dad listens to this and he knows this. There's times that we probably pretend to study. A lot of times, but we don't. Our it's mom would make sure you guys are all fine now. Don't worry, you don't have to be like worried. <laughs> no, the funny thing that was, my mom would be on our side, so she would like keep a lookout on the window. We would be watching cartoons like The Simpsons, uh, and it's past six o'clock. That's when we start studying. And my dad, we'd see, you know, my mom would spot my dad. Papa's coming. Papa's coming. And we'd run to our rooms, switch off the TV, and like, oh, and we'd be sitting there at our desk reading. Out of breath, and our dad would be confused. Why are the children out of breath when they're reading? Oh, it's such a great book, dad. Yeah, no, it's just like it's so, so exhilarating. Funny. There's too many highs and lows. That's so funny. So, mom was in on it. It was dad was the was the kind of authoritarian. Yeah, he were, maybe he knew, but he didn't tell us he knew. <laughs> oh, bless. And I mean, what were your parents like? Like, were they were they quite, um, you know overbearing or did they let you kind of do your own thing were they uh very uh tactile or you know more kind of on a colder sense i'm just mm -hmm. asking because i know that different cultures um obviously have different uh mm. frameworks for raising their children and i think it's very interesting to see how different uh how you know children and people from different cultures develop based on you know their the way that they were raised Mm. So my parents, because they came from a place called Kerala in mm. India, um, historically the region would have been Hindu. You know, that's the main religion of India. But in the 1600s, the Portuguese came to South India. So my family have like, there's no, I don't think, I mean, there's a tiny bit of Portuguese descent, but it's like minor, like a couple of percent. Um, but there's a uh, strong Catholic tradition in Kerala. So maybe 20 to 30 percent of the state are um, Malayali, that's the name of the people, Malayali people, uh, but they're Catholic. So my family are Catholic, which meant that religion and church, going to church, saying prayers, had a big part in our upbringing. In fact, probably I would say it provided the sort of the bedrock in terms of a disciplinary structure. You know, in the morning, you think about saying your prayers before and after meals, at the end of the day, being thankful to people, being grateful. So that was a, a big part of our upbringing. Mm -hmm. My parents had a slightly different approach. So my father was very academic and scholarly. So for him, he's quite a quiet mannered person, but it'd always be about thinking about why you do things. He'd make us uh, really question 
the way the world worked. He'd made us think about reading, took us to the library every single Saturday, uh, but very sort of scholarly and calm. Mm. And mum, on the other hand, she was, ah, mommy, what are you up to? What are you doing? What are you watching? Uh, she was insane, but like, you know, in her mind, not in the sort of mental health uh, capacity, but insane in terms of she was <laughs> she was just out there. She was mad. She was laughing, smiling, positive, uh, sometimes loopy in a good way. But, I and I think that the, the kids, we took on, I'm one of four boys, we took on both sides of our parents. From our dad, the sort of like, quite introspective academic wanting to understand things and read for ourselves but for my mum we've got this like life of the party oh what's going on here guys like i'm that kind of person that uh, as a grown 13 and adult i still go and talk to random people on the bus or the tube and they, they think are you weird what is this guy gonna mug me and i just say well, how are you what are you reading i do that and that comes to my mum my dad would never do that so it's a i think almost like the best of both worlds like my dad's focused but my mum sort of I say joy for life. Yeah. Oh, that's like the best balance, I think, of two, um, you know, different energies. And I think that that's why you're just such a ray of light, but you're also really logical and methodical and you can plan things and, you know, make things. It's amazing. And I, yeah, I, I want to meet your parents now. I feel like they sound like Aww. such great people. Um, tell me about your older brother, the artist. Yes. So I'm one of four boys. Mm -hmm. Um, so Davey's older than me by three years. Okay. So actually this probably is the, I would say maybe the defining, uh, event in our family's history. Mm -hmm. So when Davey's about two and a half, so I wasn't born at this stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a family wedding they'd gone to in London and he'd run across the road and was knocked over by a car, hit and run. They never found the people who did the uh, running over, as it were. And he was in the hospital for a few years. Um, and funnily enough, one of the stories, now he sort of looks back on it with positivity. But when he first emerged from the hospital, I think he left the hospital when he was like five. So been there for like a good two and a half years. As in like entirely, like he didn't yeah. go home. He'd stayed in the hospital. So when he, so this is what he tells me uh, as I was too young. But he tells me when he left the hospital, when he was about five, he asked mom and dad, why am I leaving home? He genuinely thought he lived in a hospital. Oh, that was his memory. Um, so he has a, something called, a, I think it's a C1 spinal injury, which is pretty bad as it gets in terms of, he can move his right arm, mm -hmm. but his left arm and his legs, they're paralyzed. Um, it has degraded as he's got older. Because when you're younger, you know, your body's a bit stronger and fitter. And yeah. as he's got older now, he sort of, he can crawl sort of on the floor, but that's it. His mobility depends on other people in the wheelchair. Uh, but in a strange way, him having that accident, I think made him as a personality. Obviously, physically, I'm sure he'd, maybe maybe that's not even true. I'd say, would he like to have the mobility back? That would change who he is. But it's sort of his his attitude to resilience and overcoming things and being resourceful, being very persuasive and charming when he needs to be, being stubborn as well when you need to be. But all these qualities, like he's, in fact, my family, we have four boys that all uh, got into Oxford and Cambridge University from a council estate. And I think that's, I don't know any, I don't know four children from a council estate family in England getting into Oxford. If there are people, please let me know. I'd love to, love to connect. But so we're all academically conventionally bright. Me, second and the third, third and fourth brothers got scholarships to Eton College. We might talk about later, which is where Prince Harry and Prince William went. But Davy, 
is the brightest of all of us. We're bright conventionally, but he somehow, without the sort of normal education, in fact, he didn't go to a normal school till he was 14. He went to a special school. And back then in the 90s, Tato, um, they assumed that if you were physically uh, having challenges, and again, I'm not sure whether the word is, I think handicap's probably not the appropriate word in physical disability. Yeah. Um, they assumed that you're not possessing mental faculties, you know, not able to process things. But actually, he was, I knew at home, maybe he couldn't read and write properly because he didn't go to school, but he could definitely pick up things. But some strange event, his school got burned down in an arson attack. His... Please stop, Bobby. I feel like everything that you're telling me I know. is to me just I know. Arson attack. Sounds like it's made up. Arson attack. But this was the making of Davy because this happened when he was about 13. And at this stage, I was two or three years, yeah, three years younger. I was about 10. I was definitely better than him academically. If he needed doing any sort of maths work, English, he'd come to me and I'd be like, yeah, I'm the little king here in the house. And then he was forced to go to a, a state school, a normal one, a secondary environment. And at the time, actually, that was actually the third worst school in the country. I think one in a hundred children would pass their exams at 16. Terrible school. But for him, I think that uh, it helped because if he joined a normal school, he would have been near the bottom of the school academically and his confidence would have been damaged and he would have thought, actually, I can't study. But in this school, he was in the bottom, like, quartile, bottom sets. But slowly he moved up from set seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And then within a few years, he was applying to Cambridge to do mathematics. I'm like, how does this boy who can just use one arm suddenly get to Cambridge? I'm like, if he's, and okay, at this stage, I'm the one who's asking him, Davy, can you help me out? Um, and the thing is, the funny thing growing up is that because he's like, he, his brain is like the size of, I don't know, Fort Knox. He used to organize so many things for our family. He used to organize art clubs. He organized magic shows um music concerts and we were just a little minions my my siblings and my cousins and so he was a big boss man uh sometimes with a iron fist when he needed to be but he would expel sometimes in an art club the one fist the one, yeah, the one fist. fist just the one fist sometimes <laughs> he set up an art club with our family and our cousins and you had to be admitted into it so the initiation ceremonies but if you if you did things that didn't please davy you were kicked out of the club doesn't matter if you're four years old Frederick, you are banished from the club. Two-week suspension. This guy had no mercy. But because of that, it meant that he became great organization and his art developed. And that's the one thing. Growing up, I regret as an adult. In fact, I dropped art at 14 because I thought, oh, I'm going to be an academic. I can't do art or music. I really regret it. But Davy continued to do it till 18 in school. And his art was brilliant. I mean, he's obviously, he's got the technical art skills, which, you know, to be very proficient. But where, what really struck was his imagination. Because that's what artists are. Because nowadays, there are brilliant artists that do like life. In fact, I've seen one of your friends do a life um, uh, quality image of yourself. And the, the skill it takes to do that is incredible. But I think with Davey, while he's very good at that, what it is is like he imagines things and imagines worlds and almost like puts his own like Picasso, Picasso-esque stamp on these things. And his art just, yeah, it's a thing that's been driving him. Even though he's a mathematician, Art is his like true passion. And again, I'm a bit jealous that he actually is multi-gifted because people again, I love this. When people meet me, they're like, oh Bobby, you're so good at so many things. I'm like, you think I'm good at things? You think I'm good at things? Thank God you've not met my brother. <laughs> oh man, I love him. He literally sounds so inspirational. He just sounds like a like a legend, like a living legend. Um, I watched uh Bobby sent me a four-minute interview that he did uh what was that for 
So the one of his art exhibitions was called Living with Spinal Cord Injury. So he imagined famous works of art like uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Johann Vermeer, but the famous works of art had like a spinal neck injury or they're in a wheelchair or they have a, a walking stick. Wow. And uh, the Royal Academy uh, in London, very famous uh, museum art exhibition place they held a summer exhibition and they showcased davy's work as part of this exhibition which is a pretty cool incredible gig. wow okay so yeah uh davy is a multi-talented man tell me tell me about your other brothers yeah so there's john and tom so john is six years younger than me um, with John, he was quite quiet and very diligent. In fact, I was thinking my mom's favorite child. My mom used to call John uh, her cuddle baby. Her cuddle <laughs> baby. <laughs> Where, where's my cuddle baby? I didn't get it. But I think John, because he was very quiet and very, sometimes to be honest, he had a little bit of a temper occasionally as a child, but he was also the quiet one. Uh, and the, one of the weird the sort of my memories of John is, so he was, he's really cute. When he was four, he had glasses, short-sighted glasses. You know the one with the string that you put on yes. for children? So he yes. had a string and he came looking like a little professor, doesn't know what's going on. And then one day, I think when he was about nine or ten, so short-sighted, he woke up, oh, I've got a headache, mom. Went to the doctors, doctors didn't know what's going wrong. Went to the opticians, his eyes had, by magic, pretty much had cured itself. Stop. No, Bobby, stop. Like, it, 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 no, no, to this day, we don't understand. The doctors don't understand. The opticians, because he couldn't see. He was short-sighted for years, wearing the glasses. One day, and it was, everyone in my family is short-sighted. Either had glasses, um, specs, uh, contacts, or laser eye. But he just woke up one day. I couldn't see. And like, where has this come from? No one else in our family can see without optical correction. Uh, so John, yeah, he's got some magic secret there. Yeah, miracle, miracle family. He, he was very academic as well. He got a scholarship to Eton. In fact, he's the only one in our family that became a head boy of our school. I was deputy head, and I think Davy might have been, and Tom was definitely deputy head, but John was the head boy, even though he was a sort of like quiet academic one. He got like perfect grades. I think he did a few exams two or three years early, perfect grades at GCSE, uh, got into Eton for scholarship, Did went to Cambridge to economics, now works in investment banking. So he's sort of lower profile than me and my other two siblings in terms of public work, but he's always very efficient, very kind. Um, uh, but yeah, he's a mom's cuddle baby forever. <laughs> Love that cuddle baby. I'm still waiting for my cuddle baby. My baby <laughs> does not like to cuddle. He literally is like, get away from me. <laughs> Who are you? No, thank you. Um, yeah, anyway. So, and then and then the baby, and then the baby boy? Oh, the, young, the, family? Oh, the youngest one. So he would have been 10 years younger than me. So imagine you've come into a family where you've got three elder brothers getting into Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, flying academically. That's going to be tough on that boy. So it could have been like, is it fight or flight? And his response was, at the dining table, he would argue. He would put it across his points of view. He would disagree with everyone just for the sake of it. So my dad and my brothers, we'd read The Economist, the, the Times newspaper, have conversations. And he'd be going, I, I have an opinion. Listen to me. I'm four years old, but I know what's going on. And he would say things and speak louder. And he got into debating at school, which others, we did a bit. But he properly got into it. Um, and he did it at high school till 16. He became the deputy young mayor of a borough. He's very politically charged. He organized, he also is quite like um, socially minded. He organized like campaigns for homeless people, for refugees in Calais. 
organize trips to send them like blankets and and food and books and then when again he got a scholarship to eat and like me and john did and then he became the uk and ireland schools debating champion so and and we we know in school they're like oh tommy does that because he reads his books and politics and philosophy and socrates and the philosophers but we know it's because this little boy used to just argue 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 even to this day to be honest if anyone else in our family have any issues like where there's like a legal problem or a or like a dispute or we're trying to reclaim something we send the email to tom we tell tom can you call you you're so calm and and to this day, sometimes when we start when we're having like we have a normal family we have family arguments he still tries to be methodical i'm like tom you don't need to be methodical he's like point one here's why you're wrong and point two point two a this is why I'm like tom this is not because he's now a, a, a junior criminal barrister so he's so logical and so methodical um but it's funny how you know maybe him being the youngest forced him to develop the sort of verbal skills yeah yeah amazing oh i love that like it's so weird because i my family structure is really um i guess it's it's probably quite typical of of an african family to be fair uh my mom has me and my sister i'm really close to my sister but she's way older than me she's 13 years older than me okay yeah so she was babe that's the same between tom and davy 13 years it's crazy generation isn't it pretty much yeah yeah it is it literally is um and and then my and then my dad has like a bunch of kids most of whom i haven't met but i have met some of them and i like the ones that i have met uh but i i i i i've, I've always wanted to be part of like you know like a bigger family and having all of the drama and hist- histrionics that go along with with being part of a bigger family um but it's fine. <laughs> we move. So my next question, Bobby, is this is an interesting one for me because I I think I mentioned to you in our coffee, but I also used to work in banking and I kind mm. of have my own thoughts and feelings about mm-hmm. the industry and 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 everything that kind of goes goes along with it. So so tell us why banking and then why did you leave? So um I studied maths. Uh, maths and economics at Oxford and Royal Holloway. And if you're a graduate from a good university in the UK and you're mathematical minded, working in the city in finance and banking, is sort of a natural draw. Um, and I started out my career as a trader, a financial market trader at a bank called Lehman Brothers. And if anyone sort of followed the financial market history, they'll know that that was not a good choice of bank because they did, they did collapse. They fell over. They fell they over. They fell over. <laughs> Lehman Brothers fell over. <laughs> Uh, although I stayed in banking, I was a trader at a bank called Nomura, and then I was a chartered accountant at PwC. And to be honest, like the reality is working in finance pays well because you're dealing with money. You take a percentage of that bit of money, even if it's a tiny bit, a tiny, tiny bit of a large, large amount. It leads to a very good life. So some of my peers who have stayed in banking, they're very comfortable. In fact, comfortable is not even the right word. They live very luxurious lifestyles. I sort of have given that up and i'll tell you the reason i gave up that career but to be honest i enjoyed what i did and even to this day i read the financial in fact i write for the financial times as well which is quite cool not many not many of my friends get to do that hashtag the financial... humble brag <laughs> yeah i know to be honest i'm not so good at the that i'm not so good at the humble brag i think I, my motto in life is if people are good at something you should tell others about it because one it's sort of it validates like you know the hard work you've done but also might inspire other people because if you sort of hide your talents and skills and achievements 
it means that other people might go, oh my God, Tata did that amazing. She's a great singer. Oh, Bobby really loves maths. Actually, I, I could do that. Actually, you inspire people as well. So it's a win-win. You do a humble brag, you might inspire someone. Um, <laughs> but when I worked in the city, I took a little sabbatical. Uh, and normally when people take sabbaticals, they do the sexy thing. What they do is they go to Johannesburg, they go to Sydney, they go to New York. But when they had the sign-up sheet, as it were, or there's an Excel document, no one had applied for joining the teaching and training department in the city. And like, you can understand why. Well, why do you want to teach when you're at a banking accounting firm? And I joined that. I did it for three months. I absolutely loved it. I, I'd always done well at my work. You get graded in quartiles. I always came in the top quartile in my professional work. But this bit, I was like, not just like really good, but it made me come to life. I remember the students, they're, they're graduates, they're 21, 22, so not children. They used to come up to me at the end of every day and say, oh, Bobby, you know, your, your passion for balance sheets and explaining profit and loss accounts and how the board of directors can change is incredible. And that, you know, not, not the most exciting topics, but I found just teaching ideas made me come to life. And that's when about the age of 30, I decided to to change careers and try and go into teaching. And actually, that's one thing that's... Actually, I, I read my Wikipedia page. It doesn't really mention this, but it's a big part of my life. I've always been into setting up charities and social enterprises. So when I started working at Lehman Brothers, I set up a social enterprise called Oxfizz with a couple of friends from Oxford. And our role was to support students in high school applying to top universities. So for those that could afford to pay, they would pay for the service. But for those that couldn't afford, it was provided free of charge. And any ex excess profits we made, we donated to various charities. So we donated, uh, we were running for about 12 years, we donated like a million pounds. So I could have taken home a million, I could be saying on a million pounds, but like we donated it away to different charities. So mm -hmm. I've always been passionate about education, social enterprise, running things. So I knew going to education wasn't a mad thing. I used to do that Monday to Friday, worked in a bank, worked in finance. And on Saturday and Sundays, I tended to work in educational social enterprise. So going and becoming a teacher wasn't always like a mad thing. Actually, it's something that felt like the right thing to do. Mm, wow. And then like, so you, why did you have to go to Cambridge to become a teacher? Like, why couldn't you learn at like a part-time college yeah like you literally just don't do things by halves yeah so in fact like I had work experience at a lot of schools in my borough and again by not doing things in halves again when I was working for my social so I'd taken I'd left the finance world and I went to spend some time with my social enterprise and education so I use it as like a a stopgap and I took a sub mini sabbatical within that to visit every single school in my borough I went to 30 schools. I actually spent six months investigating the state of education in East London. I read, like journals, no, probably at some stage, it's a great book as well about like yeah. different teaching practices. Different, I saw hundreds of different teachers. I spent like at least two days in every school. And then the schools I really liked, I spent a week. And then the schools I really liked, I spent three weeks. So it meant that I got like a deep dive into the type of schools um, I wanted how did uh, you make that at... happen? Did you literally just phone them all up and go? I just emailed lots. And to, to be honest, there is an element of my CV probably did help because the teachers do get inundated. And, and, I, and I do sympathize with people that send cold calling emails because I sometimes get people sending me emails. And I think, oh, yeah, I'll reply to it. But you just, you just life gets in the way you forget. So I sent lots of emails. And again, I was persistent. Sometimes people would respond to the first or second or third. I, I say, oh, my name's Bobby Seagull. I sent an email. Can I get some work experience? And then 
I think they saw the CV like he's a new guy, done really well. So eventually they got back to me. Actually, there was one nameless school that actually didn't allow me to come in. They um, they were failing at the time. Actually, they're doing really well now, but maybe they didn't want me to come and see. But you know, I'm not some sort of inspector. I'm just coming there to get experience. Um, but when I went to do my teacher training at Cambridge, I remember some of the local teachers said to me, why do you need to do that? You can just pick a local college, a local place. Yeah. And to be honest, there was a part of me that thought that, but I love being in an academic environment. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go and do my teacher training in Cambridge. Mm. I'm going to go to like, yeah, where two of my brothers were there. Uh, and actually, I think, okay, in fact, I know going to Cambridge actually inadvertently changed my life because part of my media profile comes from something that I did when I was in Cambridge doing my teacher training. Exactly. And that was going to be the next thing. Do you want to tell us what that was? What happened? Yes. How did yeah. Bobby, the banker, turned trainer, turned student, becoming teacher, <laughs> become a, a television sensation? Yeah, so this is all unexpected, never planned. So I never, ever wanted to work in television media, not even like a fraction crossed my mind. Actually, I'll be honest, Tato, when I was younger, I wanted to be a chess player, an astronaut, a footballer, or an accountant. When you, I say, you, a, when you say a chess, like who yeah. gets paid to play chess? Who? I don't know, uh, I don't know, but I wanted to be a professional chess player because okay. in the early 90s, this is something that many people might have forgotten in the UK, but they used to show... chess games on national TV, the World Chess Championship. I'd come home from school. I'd get my board set up. I'd follow what exactly is Nigel Short, a British number one against Gary Kasparov, World Chess Champion number one for like many years. And they were playing on television and I'd watch uh, intensely. I'd recreate the moves for hours. And I was obsessed by chess. I, I thought, dad, I, papa, I'd call him. I want to be a chess player. He'd say, yeah, play then, play, keep playing. Um... And I don't know, I, I think, oh, this sounds terrible. There was a girl in primary school I had a big crush on with bed hair. I'll leave it as that because she might identify herself one day. I had a big crush on her. I was playing a game of chess against her. I wasn't really focusing because I was just thinking, like little like 10-year-old Bobby was like <laughs> looking across the table and I lost the game. And after that, I lost my confidence in chess because I was meant to be the king of chess, not losing any games, but I lost. But anyway, so I'm glad. I'm glad I, think I lost. The, Otherwise, I think the lesson is just don't play chess against someone that you're attracted to, and then you just I know, I know. lose again. I, yeah, I know, I know. That was that was a terrible mistake. Um, okay, so you go on to yes. So there are the different things I could have done, but at uh, Cambridge, I was doing my teacher training. Um, I started doing my masters part time as well, and actually at the same time, I don't do things in halves. In my first full year of teaching, I became a head of department, which is not. I, I, to be honest, I would never recommend this. In fact, I, if I could go back, I'd probably say that was not clever because when you're trying to learn how to teach yourself and you're managing other staff, again, I did it because the head teacher saw that I was ambitious and hardworking. I stayed there till like Friday at 11 o'clock planning lessons. Uh, that's mad. Like who does that on a Friday night? But I, I felt like a weird sense of like, oh, I'm doing great stuff for education. But maybe if it, to protect your mental health, that's not so smart. I, I realize now. But... In hindsight. But the other thing I decided is I saw in my Cambridge college, there was a poster that said, oh, uh, do you want to um, uh, apply for University Challenge? And for international les uh, listeners, University Challenge is probably the, uh, it might be the oldest quiz show in the world. It's been on British television since 1962. And as we speak, there've only ever been two presenters. There is a new third presenter coming uh, later on in 2023. 
And this year is the same format, two teams of four representing different universities. Um, their starter questions, if you get them correct, you get 10 points. And if you get that correct, your team answers three bonus questions on a particular topic. It could be on the history of dance. It could be on South African geography. It could be in rock formations mm -hmm. in the Andes, whatever they mm -hmm. are. But you got to ask lots of questions. And I was a captain of a Cambridge team. I got on, I got selected to be my team captain. The thing was, I've always loved knowledge. I didn't really like game shows, but I loved reading. And, and I've always built up a, a great sort of Bachelor of General Knowledge. And I became the captain of the team, my college, Emmanuel Cambridge. Uh, we got selected for the BBC show, went to the recordings. I had an incredible experience. We didn't win. We actually lost to another team called Wilson Cambridge and my later nemesis, Eric Monkman. But during our season, Tato, I started going viral on social media. And the because it's all pre-recorded. So you know, I knew it went well. And I thought, okay, when it comes out, I'm going to be the coolest teacher in the school. That's what I genuinely thought would be the limit. Yeah. I'd be the coolest teacher in the school. Uh, that's the sort of, that's the, that, and I think that's a cool badge to have. Um, but as it came out, like the BBC, in a, like a, Twitter started going a bit mad. And then the BBC did a tweet. I think I trended on Twitter, my second round match. And then the, the BBC did a tweet saying, Everyone fell in love with Bobby Seagull last night. They started doing gifts about me. And then the, the following morning, halfway through the tournament, there, I was on lots of radio stations and newspapers like, who is this Bobby Seagull? And then it happened to the other guy, my friend, Eric Monkman from Wilson College, Cambridge. And, and as we built up through the rounds, they became like, we both developed like cult followings. Um, and by the time we got to our match, we had people like Stephen Fry, Louis Theroux, even... Even CBBC Stop. cartoon characters would tweet saying, like a dog called Hacker the Dog. A cartoon character was tweeting, are you team Monkman or are you team Seagull? Woof, woof. A cartoon character was getting involved. So wow. it, it became like a British middle-class obsession, I would say. My, my students are watching, a middle-class obsession. And then our match was, I think, the most watched match. It wasn't even the final madness. It was a semi-final. To be honest, Tato, whenever I'm on radio or telly, often they'll say, uh, we've got university champion Bobby Seagull because they don't quite understand how I didn't win. You didn't they, win. Uh, and I didn't even get to the I lost in the semi-final to that guy that, and he lost in the final as well, which is weird. But my energy, my enthusiasm, my love for knowledge. And again, the thing is, I knew things, but I included my team and they, there'd be moments where you'd hear me going like, oh, wait, do we discuss on the train on the way out? People love my honesty. And it wasn't planned. I had no, I didn't think, oh, I want to make myself a name on TV. I just wanted to do well in the shows myself. And it, and, it, and it shone through. And I had television producers messaging me as the series went on saying, can we get in touch with Bobby? Can we have a conversation with him about television shows? And then the BBC gave me and Eric Monkman a TV show, a road trip show. And then since then, I sort of got on. And I just, yeah, it's weird. I've got a new life now where I'm a maths teacher part-time, but I've got a really, really yeah. important and really public role on sharing my love for knowledge and education and some geeky stuff. So I, 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 again, I feel really privileged and blessed to be in that position. This is just amazing, Bobby. Like, I, I just, I almost want to pause here and just deep all of the things that you were saying, because I think you just, you didn't even realize the nuggets that were just coming out of your mouth. You were like, I was myself. And like, ugh, I'm really oh. getting emotional now. Because I just feel like, for me, I mean, if you followed my story so far, mm. which I, I think Bobby has, I hope. I listen to, yes. to your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, that's great. That's more than most um, 
I just feel like I've been through a lot, but it's only like in the past four months where I've just been like, do you know what? I'm just going to be myself. And guys, the world opens up to you. Like the world literally does this. It spreads its arms and it's like, welcome home. Thank you so much. Because I watched, I mean, I didn't watch the whole of the university Mm -hmm. challenge. I'm sorry. Like it just, Mm -hmm. my brain can't take, like, it's just too lofty for me. But even the like literal five no, the 30 seconds before they even intro the teams. Like, you just see Bobby sitting there. Because they have, they have um when they're talking about the different schools, they obviously have everybody from that school in shot. And Bobby's just, like, smiling, nodding, <laughs> winking. Like, and you're just like, I love this. Like, I feel like if I hadn't, if I, because I'm not, I'm obviously not the demographic of the, the people mm-hmm. who normally watch the show. But if I, if it had somehow accidentally come on TV, I would have stayed to watch just to watch you. Because like you're saying, it was just so real and relatable. And I love, there was this one thing where you were like, who's the, who's the lead, who's the lead singer like, of the Beatles? I think you said like, John, yeah. like, I was like. John Lennon. I was literally like screaming it at you. I was like, it's John Lennon. And you were like, is it John? John Cicada? John Lennon. And I'm just like, oh, I can't. I just literally can't. Um, but yeah, that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you oh, for pleasure. being you. And thank you for and for and to backtrack. Um, I also love the thing that you were saying about the humble brag because I had an instance once on Instagram where um, I was doing a story and I just turned around to kind of face the sun and I realized how beautiful my skin was. And I was just, I literally had like a two minute gush about how beautiful my face was. And one of my friends, well, one of my mm-hmm. Instagram friends, mm-hmm. you know how it is. Like she's not like a yeah. In yeah. IRL friend, but she was like, oh my gosh, I literally watched that thing. And all you said was, wow. And my initial instinct was to apologize and to shrink. But then I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I was like, my face is gorgeous. And I like, it's, if you didn't, if you didn't want to watch my gorgeous face, you could have just clicked to skip. Um, Mm. She wasn't meaning it in a bad way, but I just felt like, you know, it's really important, like you were saying, to to celebrate your victories and also to tell other people when they're doing good things because otherwise like people like us you know people Mm -hmm. from minority backgrounds especially we are still so underrepresented Mm. in the media and I feel like this is a massive segue and so I'm gonna (laughs) stop talking and I'm gonna go to my next question talk to us about the pandemic Mm. How did how did that affect you? So when the you? pandemic first happened, I remember like across the UK, there had been for a few weeks um, infection spreading. So our school staff started not coming in, students not coming in. So there was a sense of something was about to happen. And when it first happened, that first day, I'll be honest, it was obviously that strange thing. Boris Johnson saying you must stay home. But our sense was, oh, this is it's only going to be a couple of weeks. You know, it's a nice time to just relax and, you know, um, relax and just chill out. But after a few days, I was again, I like to keep myself busy. Maybe, again, one of the things I need to be is I'm getting better is less busy, but I generally make myself very busy. So suddenly all my work started, all my different meetings, my presentations, my talks, my TV show bookings, all started getting cancelled. So I'll be honest, for about the first three, four days, the first day was a bit of shock. 
Then the second, third, fourth, fifth day, I was sort of moping about in my bed with a laptop in front of me watching Netflix. Oh. And my dad was like, he was like, okay, okay, second day, third day. I think on the fourth day, he came in, opened my curtains, opened it up, and said, Bobby, get up at your bed, do something. As I'm watching Netflix. What did you watch yesterday? And I couldn't remember. I was watching random series. And maybe I got out of my system. And then my dad's like, okay, what do you want to do? We had a big chat about what can I do? Obviously, I've got teaching skills. Um, I'm quite tech savvy. Um, so I ended up doing lots of online live lessons, um, doing lessons mm. in math, history, geography, science, family quizzes, pub quizzes. I think I did seven, eight live events a week. And it took up, and to be honest, it was... Even to this day, even yesterday, I got a DM from someone saying, um, thank you so much for what you did for, for me and my son during lockdown. We used to come to your all your lessons. Uh, even I, the mum, learned a lot. Oh. So there's people that there's still an impact. Even though I didn't have like an amazing audience in terms of numbers, but it still impacted people's lives. So I felt very proud about that. But when you're doing that week after week after week, month after month, I don't know, for about three, four months, and, and you're not being paid for this because it's online free lessons. And there was, there was a moment halfway yeah. through that made me feel a bit sad. I'll tell you what it was. So I was about, it was about 10 o'clock. I think it was a Wednesday. I was about to do my online maths lesson. And I did maths lessons for various ages. And this is my youngest group, five to seven. So this is one where you're going to be really happy and positive because they're probably being forced by their parents to watch it. I actually felt a bit queasy. It's at 9.58. I'm like, I was telling my dad, but my dad, to be honest, bless him, he helped me so much in the early part of lockdown in terms of he'd get my camera. He was like, he's a super computer whiz. He'd get my camera set up. He'd make sure the stream's ready. He'd test it in the other room. He'd be waiting. He's almost like my the chief operating officer in the other room, upstairs bedroom. And I was like, Dad, I'm feeling a bit dodgy. And then suddenly, like, I felt something moving up my, my throat. I was about to chug. So I went to the bathroom, <sighs> emptying out my guts, vomiting, puking up. Oh. And I left my mic on in the other rooms so you could hear <gasps> and then at 10 10 or 10 o'clock 30 seconds i just carried on and did the lesson weirdly enough it was actually my best lesson at that stage maybe getting out of my system a sense of relief but i thought afterwards it's a bit wrong why do i feel i know people are waiting for me but you're ill you don't need to teach in the real world if i was vomiting in class i wouldn't go and teach a lesson why is it any different online mm. and that at that point it made me think Whilst I've learned so many things, I'm sacrificing my own physical well-being, my mental well-being. Again, I'm someone that I love exercise. If I don't exercise in terms of like playing badminton or tennis or going for a run or swimming or gym or gym classes, if I don't do sport four, five, six times a week, I just get like itchy and like, I, I, I'm like, I'm not a good person. I need to do sport. But in that lockdown period, because I was so busy, I did the odd Joe Wicks 10, 15 minutes, but the vast majority of time, I was just planning lessons, getting it ready, getting the room set up. So I didn't do any of my normal exercise for weeks. So I was overworked and I would literally, my bed was in my in my office. So I'd roll out of bed, literally get in front of the computer, present all day, plan all day, roll back into bed in the same room. And this was about, till about mid-June, maybe early July. And I think I definitely felt a sense of, I didn't feel well, well in the sense of, I felt very sad. I felt sad because mm. I felt as if I was doing myself a disservice. And it was the first time in my life I had that sort of sense of melancholy. And the melancholy was, it was strange because my, if you watch any of my YouTube or Instagram videos from then, 
I'm like, welcome to uh, Bobby Seagull's class. Today, we're going to be looking at the Vikings. And do you know the Vikings? The, the horns they were on the head? Well, that actually never really happened. I'm going to tell you why. No, they never. Oh. It was an opera <gasps> in the maybe 1860s, 70s, that someone put Viking horns on because it looked cool. And now we have this weird myth that... The image of the they Vikings that didn't horns. exist. They never wore horns. You may as well have, like, the queen being, like, the world acrobatic underwater champion. Yeah, the Queen Elizabeth used a great acrobatic on. She never did it. Same thing, the Vikings. So I would come be enthusiastic, but as soon as the lesson was done, camera switch off, I'll just check, am I off? My dad check, am I off? No, my mic's, you know, you never want your mic to keep rolling when you're like... And then afterwards, I'd be like, oh, God. Knackered. And that was like every, and I do like two, three times a day. So you get this high and this low. I'm like, I'm just tired and keep going on. And it's the first time in my life, Tata, that I really thought about my mental health because before that, I am a naturally very positive person because I think partly it comes from my mum, partly it comes from my dad's like analysis. Can you work things out? And my elder brother, Davey, his situation of being in a wheelchair, relatively, I'm thinking, okay, I could, maybe I'm a bit down, but actually, Davey's situation is much more challenging than I'd ever have to face. So all those things have kept me positive. But in lockdown, towards the, the, the end of that first lockdown, I just I, I think I felt like, why am I punishing myself? Why am I doing things when I'm actually, I need I need time for myself. And actually, maybe longer mm. term, the benefit of that is now, I'm getting better at giving myself free time. Because for, for a long time, for many years, Tato, on Fridays and Saturdays at night, I would still work late at night, even though there was no need to. But I felt like this weird, like, pressure to do work just for the sake of, even if I'm unproductive. You know when you sit in front of, and you're writing emails, and you're drafting stuff, and you're not very productive, but you just do it. And I did that on a Saturday night or Friday night, but what's the point? No one's doing it. You can go and chill, hang out with friends or family. So, in fact, I think having that sort of period of really being aware of who I am and how my emotions can go up and down has helped me feel much more in control now. Mm, okay yeah that makes total sense but um how did you how did you get out of the melancholy like how did you move through that yes I think it was actually to be honest I thought I can't do any more online teaching so when it came to mid-July it's a summer holiday and to be honest back in lockdown everyone just continued their lockdown like I know Joe Wicks he kept on doing it for like three four months afterwards people continued doing that because obviously Again, there's a business side of me that thought, actually, like some of my, one of my, in fact, one of my uh, friends at Cambridge, he started a YouTube channel, maybe a couple of years before lockdown, had like 20, 30 subscribers, went to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and now he's got 3 million. And the way that wow. works is it's not an overnight success, but you've got to keep on producing day after day, week after week, month after month for a couple of years, and then you'll start getting, and again, you need a bit of luck here and there, but then if you keep producing for a few years with good content, you'll start getting at least tens of thousands and again, the lucky people get get million or two million. Right? And I thought if I'd continued in that summer, in August and September, I could have gotten to the 10,000s, 20,000s, maybe 50,000, 100,000. And, you know, commercially as a as like a business, as an education educationalist, that's a great place to be. But I thought in that summer, it's now my summer holidays, I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to do any more. And I remember a lot of my, I remember posting that last week of lessons. Hi guys, this is my last uh, geography lesson. Hi guys, it's my last football quiz. Hi guys, it's my last family quiz. And I felt really excited. And actually it was taking that break that allowed me to recuperate. It's the same thing like the way I think about it, physical health and mental health. There are some people 
that when they're training for an event, um, a, a run or a cycle, you train every single day and you work out every single day, your body's going to be knackered. So when you go for the race or you go for an event, you're not going to perform. It's actually people that are the best, the most fit people, they plan rest professional dancers, professional footballers, you've got to have that. And, and it's no different if you're a teacher or a YouTuber or a singer. If you're constantly performing, you are never giving your body and your mind the chance to recuperate. So that summer, I gave myself a chance to rest. So when September came and I started doing bits and bobs of online stuff again, I felt much more in control. But it just taught me you can't be on all the time. So I am a kind of on kind of person all the time, but I'm now learning occasionally just to... Be quiet. Switch off. Shut my mouth. Even like normally that uh, I listen to podcasts all the time. I'm constantly consuming information. Your podcast, BBC Sound stuff, watch, uh, watching YouTube content while I'm walk walking. But then sometimes occasionally, once a day maybe, I'll just have nothing. Silence. And your body needs that. Your mind needs that. You can't just be switched on. Because when it's switched on all the time, that's when things will break. Imagine you're using a washing mm. machine all the time. It's going to start shaking, shaking. The screws <laughs> start falling off. You're using the washing <laughs> machine and the washing machine goes. You need to stop. Don't use the washing machine all the time. My washing machine's broken. I love that. No, I love, oh, have you got a broken washing yeah. machine? Is so this why? You, it came to my head. It's a pain point. <laughs> okay. Were you using it too much? Is that I what think happened? I, is that I'm, why a, I'm a clean freak. Oh my God. This is bad. I'm, I'm so obsessed with being tidy. Like, I'll change my pillow covers every three to four days for guys that's quite rare guys don't do that even even i don't even want to tell you how often i change my pillow covers it's disgusting oh. it's disgusting what? it really is i but mine is like i've told myself it's because we don't have enough pillowcases but that's mm. a lie it's just because i'm lazy to change because i i don't know i feel like clean pillowcases are great but i like having clean bedding like the whole thing uh. and then I'm like, I'm not going to be changing that every week because that's just really stressful. Now everybody knows how disgusting my house is. I'm sorry. Um, it's almost singing time, but we're not there yet. Um, so your current life is quite unorthodox, mm -hmm. right? As in there's not a lot of people who do what you do the way that you do. Um, and I guess... My question, it's a bit of a weird one because I don't know if you have a, an answer for this question, but I, I'm i speaking to people who, like myself, mm. right? So I have a day job. I'm a, I'm a PA in my day job, but then I've also got this podcast. And then I also have all these other things that I want to, you know, actualize. And I think, how did you give yourself the permission to be unorthodox? Like, how did mm. you allow yourself to go you know because it could have been easy when the well, when the fame came but yeah when the fame came that's that is what happened mm -hmm. but when the fame came it could have been easy to be like okay i'm fully going to lean into this now but you know that like education is really important to you and you and you stuck with teaching and so so how do you balance the the two or all the it's not even two the the various yeah you know and yeah i think okay so i tell you that i think the reason that again I'm not going to say that I'll always be in the class because at some stage I may get an amazing opportunity that requires me to present a show that's a daily show. But for now, the reason why I can still make it work is I think, why did I ch leave a high paid career in banking to education? And I left because I felt one, teaching was a profession that would 
really capture my spirit, something that I can make an impact on others. And again, when you can see that impact on people, again, people that are, are coaches, that are trainers, they'll know the same. If you work with other people and you see the impact daily on others, that that rejuvenates your soul, you rejuvenates your spirit. Um, so one, I knew that I knew the reason that I changed from banking to education. But two, I think there's a there's a lovely sort of virtuous cycle between the teaching, education, and media work. Because in media, I'm you know, Bobby Seagull, the math teacher on. I think it gives me a credibility in the media work. And again, I've got shows coming out in the next few months, like Channel 4, Celebrity Hunted, BBC series, uh, on Pilgrimage, a Netflix reality dating show. These are all coming out. But I think being a math teacher, one keeps me grounded because you, your head can float away a bit if you're doing all these exciting things. But also it gives me something like to talk about something because something a bit different because people that work there, you know, there are lots of people that do full-time media jobs. I understand why it's an attractive area. It's really fun. You know, it's glitzy. Um, but I feel as if doing the class teaching really attunes to who I am. I've always been since a young age, someone that likes helping others. Even in secondary school, I remember, and primary school, actually, at break times and lunch times, after I'd finished my snack, I would go back in to help people do their homework. I, I always loved doing I don't know why. To be honest, I remember once I got myself in trouble because I told someone the same ideas that I had. And then she's like, hmm, you two have the same ideas in an English essay. How is that possible? Your stories are the same. And I didn't, I didn't grasp up my friend. I think I took it on the chin. We both got a big telling oh. off. Um, uh, where were you? I love Roy, that. Roy. <laughs> that was, that's, that's a friend's name. Um, but uh, I've always liked helping people. And I think being in the class, I get the sort of, I get that buzz. It's a weird thing where when you help others, it is seen as altruistic. You're helping, being good for them. But also it's a weird way. It's selfish as well, because I feel great helping people. I feel happy. So it's a win-win. It's like that where we talked about the humble brag. Um, mm, yeah. Obviously, humble bragging is, you know, you, you feel good about yourself, but actually it can help others to open up about what they want to achieve and make them realize they should be proud as well. Yeah, 100%. It's, it definitely is a a win-win. You don't have to, you don't have to tell me twice. Um, and so then my next question would be, do you have any advice for someone who is maybe, you know, a, a few steps back kind of where I am maybe um that's trying to create a life that they love like this is literally such a you know take it wherever you go with this question is where it was meant to go like do you have any advice for anyone who's like I'm here and I'm trying mm -hmm. to get here mm. and here doesn't really make sense it's not it's not a you know I can't see the road like mm -hmm. yeah what do you so, so what I would say is try and look at people be it via their Instagrams or their TikToks or Facebooks or whatever they use, people that you admire and that you try to, you are obviously, you are always you. You, I'm always Bobby, you always start to wear our own unique beings. But there are probably people out there that inspire you that you think I could, I would love to do some of what they do. So actually look at those people, see what their paths are, see what their journeys, listen to podcasts about them, watch YouTube clips, um, check out their Instagram, see what, how they follow their life and think, oh, what have they done? Are there any lessons you can learn? So that's definitely one way, almost like being inspired by the role modeling of other people. 
Then I would say second mm-hmm. leg, consult, speak, 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 talk to people, friends and family, other people that have changed because they can give you practical advice on oh, why they stuck with their career or why they change. So speaking to people that are close to you, um, one, it means that you keep on refining the process because sometimes if you just keep it in your head, our heads can be good, but they can also be mischievous. They can, they can you know, claw at us and gnaw away. But if you open out there, one, it takes a bit of pressure off. And then two, there are people that might try and support you. And they might tell you, okay, so Bobby, you're only president of the United States. That's insane because you can never be president of the United States because you weren't born there. So they'll, they'll also tell you some of your aims and ambitions that are just not realistic. Bobby, you want to be an astronaut? That's not going to happen because you've got to be five foot ten. You're for five foot five. You're never going to be. A... So there are some practical things that can't, ha- that can't happen. Bobby, you want to be the, under, you know, the junior Olympic chess champion of the world? That won't happen because you're not a junior anymore. You're an adult. You can't enter the junior. So all the things that are not realistic, your family and friends can also tell you. Maybe, I mean, again, sometimes family and friends might inadvertently cap your cap your career where you it shouldn't but they can also provide a sounding board and then finally mm. i think is to think about how can you also generate income from what you want to do because this is the bit which when people talk about chasing your dreams i i, I think you everyone we live life once on this earth and we should really chase our dreams but we still need to pay your your rent and your heating and gas and pay for fat so all those things so i think it's trying to find a, a way of what can i do that make sure my bills are paid and maybe in the weekends or evenings or a day away from work, I find time to tap into my passion. And if that passion turns into something that's income paying, that's great. But if it doesn't, at least you've, you've given it a shot. So I think it's like trying to yeah consult people, look who your role models are, try to get buy-in from your family and friends. But if it, it doesn't matter, you know, not, you know, not always everyone has that. And also try and think, you know, is there something that pays my bills while I'm trying to search for my passion? Yeah. That is all very, very valid advice. Um, I've got one more question, um, but I'm just going to sing the song first. You know, when you've got like a, <clears throat> like a, a frog mm-hmm. that's sitting. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to gurgle. <laughs> yeah, gurgle's it. <laughs> I gurgle every day with my mouthwash. <laughs> Do you? I don't use mouthwash. I get I get my gum um, my gums are dodgy so I need to Ah my um my dentist told me that mouthwash is like only useful in between brushes like you shouldn't be mouthwashing at the same time that you're brushing your teeth because they just okay, they, they do the they, same thing truth. that is the truth of that Um oh I actually love this song I I hadn't listened to it actually listened to it until you decided that you wanted it sung. I really, really like the lyrics. I was like, oh, and I, I like Miley Cyrus's version actually. Oh. Um, yeah, I quite like Miley Cyrus's version, but I also enjoy the other one that you sent me. But I, th- I think Miley Cyrus's one is my favorite because it just feels so like. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, I hope I do this justice. This is the climb by Miley Cyrus. Sung by your girl Tato Reynolds. Okay, I have to find my note. Okay. I can almost see it. That dream I'm dreaming. But there's a voice inside my head saying, You'll never reach it. Every step I'm taking. 
Every move I make feels lost with no direction. My faith is shaking, but I, I gotta keep trying. I gotta keep my head held high. There's always gonna be another mountain. I'm always gonna wanna make it move. Always gonna be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm gonna have to lose. And about how fast I get there. And about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. Finish. Oh, I love that. I had, I had goosebumps at the start. I felt... I know, I, know, oh, I loved it. That's that's it's incredible. What I don't know how you musicians, singers, do that. You you tune in and they say you get the right pitch and then you. It's, that's a gift. That's the gift you have. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, I really enjoyed singing that. I really really enjoyed singing that. Um, and I'm glad that you liked it. That's literally like every time after I sing, I'm always like, uh, uh, no, uh was no. it good enough? I loved it. Um. So, so tell us, tell us why uh, you've cho- you've you've chosen that song because I asked you to pick a song that was meaningful to you right now. So, tell us why. Mm. So, the first time I came across the song was I think in about two thousand and nine uh, with Joe McKeldry. So, anyone that follows the UK X Factor, I know I've not really been a fan of Miley Cyrus back then, and I, and I'd heard it for the first time. And X Factor sang it for us final winning song. In fact, uh, a man people may have heard of who actually came second in uh, X Act of the Year, um, Ollie Murs. Ollie Murs had come second and did his own version, but not quite as good as Joe McKeldry's. So he had Joe had like some, he had a higher voice. Um, but what I love about this song and what resonated back then and still does nowadays is about how people have dreams, you've got ambitions and there's also like in there's, there's a phrase that says there's a voice inside my head saying you'll never reach it. And a lot of people have this. And I too just feel the same sometimes is imposter syndrome. You know, you think whenever you reach out, oh, I've got this big bank or I'm not head of department. Oh, I've got this presenting job. Often there's like a little nagging voice. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And I think as soon as you realize that so many people feel the same way, you shouldn't feel so bad about it. It's a normal part of like actually having a bit of anxiety, but actually that feeling is all right. And what I also love, actually, probably the main message for me is that it's not about your destination. It's not about getting there. It's the actual journey. It's the climb. Because obviously when we get to the top of somewhere like, oh, that was cool. Look at me. I'm king of the hill or queen of the mountain, wherever you are. But actually, the thing that you remember is the journey you went, the struggles, the ups and downs, the people you met along the way. And when you get to the top, as the song line says, there's always going to be another mountain. There's always going to be other dreams. But actually, it's that destination, that climb, that's what makes who you are. And I found that just resonates with me, no matter whether I'm feeling up or down. It just is a really humbling um, and uplifting song at the same time. Yeah, I think that's the perfect summation of of the vibe that it gives you. It is like, it's very humbling, but it's also like, oh, but you can do this. Mm. Like, you know, there's going to be another mountain. Da, 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 da. Like, and you can, you can make the climb. Um, finally, before we let you go... Mm. 
Tell us about your book, Bobby. Oh, so there's actually a couple of books. So one for quiz fans ah. was the Monkman and Seagull quiz book. Monkman, Eric Monkman, so the the team that defeated me. We become friends. We've done like uh, we've done a Radio Four documentary, a quiz book. Uh, what have we done? We've done two road trip series, and we've had we were on Celebrity Antiques road trip as well. So we've done a lot of stuff together. Uh, so there's a quiz book for quiz fans. But the the more personal one is the life-changing magic of numbers. So people, mm -hmm. if, if you know, I'm actually just pointing to it there. That's the hardback oh, copy. Oh, I love that. I the love hard, that. I the paperback copy is all there. They're the black, black spine bound. So it's all about how maths and numbers change my life. So I talk about maths in music, maths in sport, maths in cooking, maths in astronomy, maths in life planning, maths in dating. I just know about how I try and apply a mathematical framework. So it's meant to just, I think it's meant to be uplifting to hear my life story, but also people then think, oh, actually, I can see how you can apply like a mathematical framework to most parts of life. Mm, that sounds amazing. Thank you. Um, and I will give it a read. I do have a very wrong, wrong, very long reading list. Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, definitely... it's an audio book. So maybe that's like quite nice. You can hear my voice. Oh, yeah. are, are you narrating it? Yes, that's I narrate it cool. myself. Oh, I love that. Okay, now I definitely will. Yeah. I'll give it a listen because I like your voice. I like yeah. listening oh, to you. you. Bobby, thank you so, so much for coming through. Can you tell our listeners where to find you? Like, yeah, yeah where do they find more of Bobby? Yeah, so generally social media is the best. So at Bobby underscore Seagull, so B-O-B-B-Y underscore S-E-A-G-U-L-L, -L, like the bird. And that would be on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook is Bobby Seagull, uh, YouTube is Bobby Seagull TV, I'm on LinkedIn, so I'm on pretty much all the platforms. Uh, I probably even got a MySpace account, but I ain't telling you that one. Do you? I feel like you have a website. Don't oh, you I do, BobbySeagull.com. God, I don't really update it as much, but it's nice. It's shiny, a shiny website. It is shiny. It's yeah. very nice. It's got all the things. It's yeah. what like made me really smile when I was like doing my research. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is cool. Before I let you go, because you've mentioned this more than once, what is a quiz book? Oh, is this a book full of quizzes? Oh, so I've written it's questions that I've written uh, with answers, but they're not just like what's the capital of uh, Bahrain? Uh, what's the heaviest element on Earth? Uh, what's the tallest mountain? The questions are like they're like puzzly. They've got like little like they set up a context. So they're they're a bit more require a bit more thought. So give us a for instance. Do you have anything oh gosh. like let me let me let me can I walk to get my book? Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I mean there are there are more knowledge-based puzzles. Um, but there are also like, let me have a look. Uh let's pick a thing is let me think maths. I got there's also sections for primary school children. Um, okay. Let's have a look. Okay, so this is a, a a sort of geographical type puzzle. So if okay. oh, this is very appropriate. If six equals South Africa, okay. Five equals Guyana. Okay. Four equals Malaysia. Three right. equals Belgium, and two equals Nigeria. Why would we have an answer to one? In 2011, but not anymore. So six equals South Africa. So maybe if you think of the clue I can give is think about the flags. Six equals South Africa. What do you know about South okay. Africa's flag? 
What, what? It's got all of the colors. And Six ha- colors. There you the go. Flag. Guyana, guess how many colors ah, it has? Five. Malaysia has. Four. Belgium has. Three. Nigeria has. Two. And, and then my thing says, why do we have an answer to one back in 2011, but no longer now? And the reason is, they, uh, Libya used to have a, I think, a green field, like your jumper, back in 2011, yeah. but they changed the flag in 2011. So there's no countries With that have one. No. Oh, that is so great. Okay, because I wasn't keen on buying the book before because I thought like, why am I going to use it? But now that I've had an experience, I'm like, oh, I quite like this. Because <laughs> um, then you can like run your own quizzes. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, you have like your own little home, home quizzes. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. This has been so fun. And there you have it. Season one wrapped. We are done. I'm gonna take a bit of a break. The idea is four weeks. If I'm not back in four weeks, guys, send help. Send help. <laughs> send a pigeon. Get someone to come find me. I am creating content in this time. I'm thinking about what I want to do with the next few seasons of this podcast in that time if you have any requests if you want me to cover anything specifically please let me know um it's been a pleasure having these chats and having you come back to me and say whatever you've had to say on the chats you're all absolutely lovely and beautiful and wonderful and i can't thank you enough i'm gonna keep spamming you guys to (laughs) listen to the episodes that you haven't listened to yet um but yeah thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you and i just want to leave by reminding you that i i'm working with this great guy um solomon makubela soul fitness on instagram and guys um like it's been an interesting journey i think uh i the things that i want from our training and our working together literally very wildly from day to day and last week I had a massive wobble and I was basically like doing all of these burpees and these really really hard high intensity workout things and and complaining that like I didn't want to be leaner and stronger and fetter which is absolutely a lie and I was like I just want to keep eating whatever I want and drink all the wine um and Saul was like really, really respectful but firm in that moment. And I think that's exactly what I needed because, you know, maybe another trainer would have just been like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Like, you know, that's okay if that's not what you want to do. We can just do whatever you want to do. But instead of that, he kind of dug his heels in and was like, no, this is not what you want. You're paying me money to tra- help transform your body. Like, this is not what you want. And I think. I felt like I was, like I needed to, um, like love my body and, and loving my body meant giving it whatever it wanted and that's like the complete opposite, you know, eating while it's loving your body, moving your body is loving your body, hydrating yourself is loving your body. Um, and before I go off on too much of a tangent, basically I just want to say he's a great guy, 
give him a try if you are looking to exercise and change your body dm me and i'll put you in touch with him and i promise you you won't regret it it's been great thank you thank you so much see you in a few weeks time have a nice break from me but probably not because i will be spamming you (laughs) all right thank you so much bye